Welcome to Simple Life Radio. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez. Simple Life Radio focuses on the simple things in life that get us back to basics and help connect us to the sweeter things in life and to each other. In our fast-paced lifestyle, it's really easy to lose track of those simple things and sometimes even take them for granted or get caught up in overwhelm. So for the next hour, sit back, maybe get yourself a cup of tea and just relax with us. Our topic for today is H2O water conservation, how to get it, store it, and use it. You know, for us humans, fresh water is the most important thing on the planet. And yet, close to 900 million people worldwide don't have enough. And 36 U.S. states are currently facing a shortage. California, for example, is under drought conditions. The good news is every little bit helps and it's pretty easy to cut back on your water usage. You know, um, living off the grid has advantages and the more you live off the grid, the more expert you become as a conservationist. Our guest today, Theo Mayer, lives off grid in Big Sur and has had how many years now off the grid? Learning how to work with water and experiencing things that are as of yet uncommon. He's generously agreed to share some important tips and information with our Simple Life audio uh, audience here. And um, I want to welcome Theo and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Cynthia. Great to be here again. So how many years has it been? Well, it's been 11 years I've lived down a Big Sur off the grid and nine in my own house. Wow. And isn't it true that you, you kind of learn by experience, right? Yes, and sometimes it's not the most comfortable or pain-free <laughs> experience, but uh, yeah, that's this a great way to learn. This is, yeah, that's how you remember. Well, did you have anything you wanted to start off with today? Well, you know, there's a, a couple of stories I just feel like I need to start off with. The one is uh, called The Chinese Water Bearer, and it's a story that is from long, long ago. Uh, from a time when people would carry water from a local well or stream up to their home for their daily use. And there was one man who lived in China who would go down daily to a beautiful stream near his home and he had two pots with which to carry water and a yoke that fit across his shoulders so one pot was hung from each side of the yoke. He would fill his pitchers up with water and begin his hike back to the house. One of the pitchers had a crack in it and as he made his way back up to the house the water would leak out of this crack and by the time he got back to the house the pitcher was only half full. And after many months and years of this use, the pitcher one day got quite upset because it realized that at the end of the trip to the stream, it only was able to deliver a half a measure of water to the house. Mm. And so the pitcher complained <laughs> to the Chinaman about how upset it was that it could only deliver half a measure of water. And the man replied, my good pitcher, for all of these years, I have carried you up and down that trail 
as you have leaked your water along the trail. Flowers have blossomed and grown. Have you not noticed that on your side of the trail, there are all those beautiful living things? The pitcher reflected and realized, indeed, the man was correct. There was an amazing amount of life on its side of the trail. The man said, see, you have so much to be proud of, even in your cracked state. <laughs> you deliver beautiful water along the trail and make all these things grow. And the pitcher never complained again and was very happy for its crack and its leaking along the trail. So the story brings out a couple of things. Yeah. One is that we're all a little bit cracked. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was in there. And in that crack nature, we have a lot that we contribute to the planet. And the other thing is how precious water is mm. and how dispensing it consciously and deliberately can bring an abundance of life into an area that never perhaps had it before. Um, and this is really the story of my life up there on the hill. I moved onto a piece of land that had no water source, no spring, no, no well, well <laughs> <laughs> nothing. And I had it in my mind that I should and could and would be able to get enough water from rainfall to make it. Mm. And I have for years now. And the cool thing that's happened is on a parcel which was by this time of the year parched and dry, it has now become an oasis for so many wild creatures. We have flocks of quail, we have, unfortunately, deer that come and visit my orchard and garden regularly. Yeah, that's always a mixed bag there. <laughs> They're so beautiful. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Um, we have an abundance of lizards, many varieties, whiptails, horned lizards, blue tails, uh, blue-bellied um, snakes that were never there before, and my favorite, the king snake. Um, and songbirds are now making at their regular stop uh, spring and fall. Now, do you leave water containers out for the animals, the birds and the deer? And uh, This is another great question. We don't. However, I have a gray water system uh, that is always moist. So it, it's got a leak. No, it no. doesn't have a leak. No. But if any animal is really desperate to get water, they can burrow their head into the cattails and oh, right. get a drink of yeah. actually very clean water. Well, the cattails are used for filtration. Yes. And uh, that's nature's design, which I think, you know, humans have been utilizing of late very consciously. Well, here we are talking about gray water. Yeah. What an incredible way to conserve water 
and put it to use a second time. Well, let's start by telling folks what is gray water. I mean, does it smell bad? Is it unsightly? <laughs> I mean, for, for people who aren't really familiar with it other than hearing it in an um, article or, you know, reading it in a magazine. Well, um, I would say yes, that gray water can be both unsightly and smelly. And it took me uh, taking the time to actually develop my gray water system before it not only became unsmelly, but also sightly and life-producing. Uh, the water from my gray water system. Well, let's start. Yes. So gray water is like Gr off of your kitchen sink, maybe, or your washing any, machine? Any of your sinks. It's, it's basically any of the water that you use in your house besides the toilet. Okay. Toilet water would be considered brown water. And there are systems to actually deal with brown water okay. uh, and make it usable in orchards. Uh, and I've heard even gardens, uh, though I have not taken my brown water to that step. So we won't be talking about that we today. We won't be. <laughs> but gray water we could use in the garden. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think about uh, the luxurious baths and showers that we take and and washing of dishes and clothing. If you realize that all of that water can be put to use a second time growing whatever trees and plants you'd like, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful thought as you're using it. Does it matter what kind of soap you use if you're going to use your gray water? I think that it does to a certain extent. It's uh, really good to try to find uh, soaps that are going to easily biodegrade. Will that be marked on the package for it folks? Generally, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And Seventh Generation is a good uh, company to buy soaps like that from. And what about bleach? I mean, if I'm going to use uh, bleach in my washing machine, does that mean I can't use that for gray water? No, I think uh, your filtering system will take care of that. Yeah. If, you know, once you install your filtering system. Oh. and as I mentioned in the beginning, when I was taking all the water from washing dishes and taking baths and doing laundry and just running it through a pipe and into a collection tank and then taking that water and putting it on the orchard, it got rank to the point where if you got some on your hands, it wasn't a pleasant experience and they could smell for quite some time. And that was without filtration? At that, that was without filtration. Yeah. Um, it was great to still be using the water a second time. Uh, but when I did have the time, I ended up getting a couple of plastic 55-gallon drums from Todd Champagne over at Happy Girl Kitchen uh, that had been used for apple cider vinegar and cut the tops off of them, filled them with redwood duff from Palo Colorado Canyon underneath the redwood trees. I cut a hole in the bottom of them, a little two-inch hole in which I had a pipe that connected the two 55-gallon drums. And then I went and got cattails, um, dug them up from a place nearby. So that you kept them alive. Kept the cattails yep. alive. Um, and put those in the top of these 55-gallon drums once they had been filled with gray water. And the water would come in to the top of the first tank, 
it would filter through all of that redwood duff, it would go out through the bottom, and then it had to come up through the second tank where there was another pipe um, that allowed the water to exit into my water catchment tank, which I would then use to water the orchard. Now, the really cool thing is that those little cattails that I put in there ended up having other aquatic plants, their roots or their seeds nestled into the mud around the cattail roots. And what I thought was just going to be cattails turned into this incredible aquatic ecosystem <laughs> uh, that now it nourishes uh, not only all those plants, but it also uh, gives life to amphibians. I have a whole little troop of frogs that live in my gray water wow. system that I can hear croaking in the evenings in yeah. the summer. Wow. It's really quite delightful. And does it draw some of those songbirds you mentioned earlier? I mean, just it, because there's, you know. Yes, it definitely wow. does. I, you know, the songbirds were never there when I first, probably the first four years, we didn't get, you know, warblers coming through. Um, but now we get these warblers and, th and thrushes that come through in abundance. They're so beautiful. In the spring and the fall. Yeah. And so, you know, now I think, you know, my place is on their, 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 <laughs> their tour map. <laughs> well, they know not only they can get some respite, some shade, and some water, but you probably have a, a very abundant garden. True. Yeah. And, you know, again, this water growing all those plants not only grows the plants, but then grows all the associated organisms that come with those plants, which includes a lot of insects. Uh, uh, yes, we've finally arrived at the... Insects. Uh huh. And, you know, also plants that you don't even invite, but uh, that produce seeds um, that the songbirds seem to really enjoy munching on, yeah. you know, in their travels. Do you, do you find with your water, um, you were just describing your gray water catchment for anyone who's just joining us, and how it goes through a uh, double filtration system and then into a storage tank. Do you find that it... Uh, is an invitation to mosquitoes. Oh, great, <laughs> great thought. Because those mosquitoes, what a horrible pest. I still haven't figured out what mosquitoes are... Attracted to? Well, uh, what they're good for. Oh, except I see, yeah. <laughs> perhaps, you know, some natural inoculation. Feeding um, bats. <laughs> feeding, yeah, that is true. So mosquitoes, they just come in such abundance. Now, it's interesting because this year we decided to get mosquito fish, and uh, which you can get at Hacienda Hay and Feed. And I think California Ag gives them away. I think you can get six or seven mosquito fish at a time. And we just got one little batch of mosquito fish, and I put them in to the storage tank to see if they would actually be able to survive and amazingly they did and have since we put them in which was back in i think march uh so we don't get any mosquitoes coming from that storage tank that's really great now how do you protect your mosquito fish from 
Let's say raccoons or somebody who likes to eat those little snacks. I have a cover over uh, the storage tank. We actually don't get raccoons up on our property, and I can't imagine there being any other... Bobcat? I don't think they would dive into the storage tank for mosquito fish. They're pretty protected, and there's also a place where they can hide in there. So... Well, the one thing that is the the biggest worry with the mosquito fish is on in the exit of the storage tank, uh, you know, where we run a hose and then water all of our trees. Um, I had to, you know, create a little screened device, yeah, uh, that was right there in the beginning, so that they can't get sucked down into the that would be bad the hose. Yeah, it would be really bad. It's yeah. sad. Is there any um, chance of overcrowded mosquito fish in uh, your storage tank? I'm hoping that they limit their population appropriately. I haven't noticed that there's been a big boom yet. So mm-hmm. all is well in the in the storage tank right now. What is your water usage per per year? And first, maybe you can tell us, I know you've got 44 acres, but what are you actually watering? What size space are you actually watering and and um what's your water usage okay i hmm. i'm wondering i think we should maybe it's a back up and talk about water storage um because it's from the amount of water that i am able to store that i then determine my use i see yes if I could have twice the storage, I would use, use twice, twice the water. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what I am using uh, water for up there predominantly is to grow an abundance of trees that are food producing. Mm-hmm. Um, that really takes the most water. And it is in the beginning of those trees' lives uh, that it takes the most. Once the the trees are established, the watering becomes minimal or not at all. For instance, uh, olive trees uh, in our climate can go without water through the entire summer. Um, I have 19 olive trees in the ground right now. Uh, 15 of them I planted in the first year that I was on the property. And I have not watered them now for three years. And they're good. They're totally fine. And last year they produced three gallons of olive oil. So they are one species that are really set up uh, to grow without water. Well, yeah. That's their origin, right? um, I think it is. But I've also had that experience with our stone fruit trees as well. So... Pluots, apricots, peaches, plums. We have not watered for the past two years. And uh, the last two years have been the two years when they have produced the most fruit since the time that we've been up there. Now, I know uh, you wanted to talk about water storage. And so um, we're not including the trees you just described as using any of the water that you collect and store. Right. I'm, <laughs> I have a lot of new trees in the ground as well uh, that I'm using water for. Um, 
The, the biggest use of water on the property is really growing the vegetable garden and raspberries. They take a lot of water. They do. So daily water use for those um, has got to be 75, 200 gallons on my garden and raspberries. Daily use is 75 to 100 gallons. Yep, I'm guessing through the summer. Sure. Now that the weather's cooled down, it's probably half that. Um, I also like growing grapes uh, and figs, both of which take a fair amount of water as well. I'm hoping that the fig trees, once they're a little bit more established, will take less. Yeah. But I still think uh, figs tend to use a fair amount of water. I Hmm. think so. They are Mediterranean, though, so we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I just want to compare, if I may, the usage that you described uh, in your garden area. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I want you to correct me in terms of what you use in the house for the residents on your property. But... Um, Here in the state of California, the largest per capita water user in the Bay Area is Hillsborough. And they are a town whose residents average 334 gallons a day. Per person. Yeah. And that's in comparison to your 75 to 100 gallons for your garden and fruit trees. Right. And there's three people. Three people, people. and sometimes Mm -hmm. I have guests, so we're up to maybe four or five people a day up um, at my place. And for the household use, um, we go through about 500 gallons a month. Okay. Okay, which is between 15 and 20 gallons of water a day. A day. That's for everybody. That's for everybody. (laughs) And that's, you know, yeah, that's not a per capita. Well, and the interesting thing I saw also about water usage here in this uh, general area uh, in California is that, okay, we spoke about Hillsborough. They use 334 gallons a day per capita, and 14 miles away there in East Palo Alto, they use... 79 gallons a day. Much better. Not known for farmland or probably even lawns to speak of. Um, But yes, quite a a drastic uh, difference. Now, Cynthia, that statistic, uh, they're using um, an average. So what's included in that is water that's being used in industry or it's just well, these, the, the water these, used for the area it, and it then is, it is divided the by the number of people. And that brings up a really good point because these two areas are not known for having heavy industry. Mm-hmm. However, if you do any research, you'll find that industry usage is astronomically higher than residential usage. Um, for example, in California still, uh, going a little south of us here on the central coast in in Southern California, there is a a town, uh, Vernon, which is in L.A. County, and it only has 112 residents there, but it has dozens of factories, meat packing plants, and other you know really heavy water usage industries within its city limits, and they use 94,111 gallons 
per day. And that per was per person. Yes, and that was as of 2011. So that statistic is three years old. Isn't there a statistic where for um, power plants, uh, the amount of water usage in the country, 47% of yeah. the water used in our country is used for power generation. That is a really good point. So power generation, Theo, um, includes what? Heating, cooling. So that's running the heater or um, drying your clothes. Well, I think power generation, I think that's more power plants. So we're talking right, about... Right, but, yeah. but if we don't use it, they don't need to make it. That's true. That's really where I was going. Well, I think if we're going down that road, then, you know, to me, taking a personal control of your power usage by installing whatever energy system you can in your house uh, is a great way to go. Um, in other words, putting solar panels on your rooftop. And I know you've got that. I can't <laughs> wait until our show and we really talk about solar power. Um, but we are talking about water today, and uh, I know we've got more to, to uh, cover in terms of your storage. Um, and, and my whole system of, of water catchment. Uh, it's an interesting thing because if we just look at the state of California uh, and consider the time that we get our rainfall and sometimes great amounts of water, being able to collect that off of the many rooftops uh, and store it and then use it when we don't have that water coming down. Yeah. It's, it's the, the one thing, when we talk about a water crisis, it's the one thing that makes the most sense to me. It's just it's a hard thing to deal with because it has to be done on a house-by-house -house basis. So how does the government step in and subsidize water catchment um, or require it? Requiring it wouldn't go over too well. Subsidizing, yeah. Subsidizing. water catchment in California would go a long ways to alleviating the crisis that we now find ourselves in. That is a fabulous point, rainwater catchment. And when we come back after our break, we're going to cover actually some information that you can jot down, so get a pen and pencil um, about, you know, how much your uh, collection can be for the the roof size you can kind of just estimate how much rain collection you can do where you live now not a difficult thing but we are going to take a break and i want to let everybody listening know that simple life radio previous episodes uh, archives are available as podcasts and you can access those podcasts by uh, going through the internet on um, our website, pilgrimsway.com, click on the Simple Life Radio tab and just tab through prior episodes. They are available to either download or listen now. And then the most complete library is at Podbean. So that's one word, simpleliferadio.podbean.com to uh, access all of the um, podcasts from the last year and a half now. And there is a previous episode with the O'Mayor where we talked about uh, living off the grid. So um, thank you for listening, and I'm going to um, uh, take us to break here. We'll uh, be back with you shortly, so stay tuned for more Simple Life.
Okay. And we're back in studio live with our local guest, Theo Mayer, who has been living off-grid for the last 11 years up in Big Sur at the top, the sunny top of Paula, Colorado Canyon. And before we went to break, we talked a little bit about rain catchment. Uh, don't know how much any of you listening know about rain catchment, but just want to give you some statistics. So if your roof size square footage, let's just say you've got a gutter on um, your roof and your roof is a thousand square feet, says here you collect 550 gallons approximately of rainwater per inch of rain. So that's pretty cool. That's like, uh, that's a lot. It doesn't take long in a downpour. No, it's uh, amazing how quickly you can fill up tanks with water when the rain is really coming down. We had one storm like no other storm that we've ever had since I've been up there where it rained 12 inches in 24 hours. And to catch so much rain so quickly was miraculous. It was thousands of gallons. Cynthia, I have three roofs that I catch water from right now uh, that go into my storage tanks. And the house roof is about 1,300 square feet. The barn roof is about a thousand square feet, and my shop roof is about a thousand square feet. If you tally that up, I believe it's somewhere around 1,800 gallons mm -hmm. per inch of rainfall. That's right. Uh, which soon becomes a lot of water. Well, and do you have the system, Theo, where you actually use open-sided gutters such that I know at our house we do and it sloshes over the side of the gutters when mm -hmm. it's really really heavy it can't yes some I mean if it's really heavy that yeah. can happen yeah. and I do keep them open uh, my mom at one point bought me these plastic covers uh, that were screened um, so that the leaves wouldn't get into the gutters and I tried that for a little while and found that the leaves got into the gutters anyway as well as mice finding it a wonderful place to oh, have their nests no. uh, you know in the summer months so anyway I got rid of those and every year I have to clean my gutters uh, about this time of the year when yeah. the rains are about to come yeah um, my roofs are metal um, so we're getting into systems now yeah and that you know your roof material is pretty important if you're catching water for your household use. Uh, I wouldn't want asphalt shingles, for instance, for my roof material if I'm then going to be bathing in the water that I catch off my roof. So I chose to get uh, metal uh, that had a baked enamel on it um, and then went with copper gutters, uh, which then feed into PVC pipe. Um, and then into my poly, uh, typically polyethylene, I think. It's, the, you know, the poly, the green plastic yeah. water tanks. Right. Um, and how big are your water tanks? I have many tanks at this point. 
My largest is 11,900 gallons, and it was a steel bolt-together tank that took about five days to put together. Man. Um, and all the rest are poly tanks ranging in size from 500 gallons all the way up to a little over 5,000 gallons. So altogether, um, I think I heard uh, that you collected 51,000 51 to 52,000 gallons of storage is what I have in the last year was the first year that I was able to collect that much water. Mm -hmm. And that was in the driest year that we have had uh, in a long time in a very long time yeah I believe since the 1800s I heard that yeah so uh, do you have plans to increase that should people start out with certain catchment storage uh, you know equipment and then plan on adding or expanding as years go by that's probably a good idea I think the way to go about it is one to measure your roof size, uh -huh. the square footage, find out the average rainfall for Your where area. you live, yeah. and then determine how much water are you going to be able to collect in a given winter. M my guess is it would be hard to put that many water tanks on your land which brings up a really good point you know i have heard the argument and i'm not going to say i agree or disagree but i think it's an important consideration people say you know if everybody's saving water then it's not getting back to the earth you know we're, we're disrupting the balance therefore and the trees that do deep water uh, 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 access don't have the same volume of access available to them and I think you know my experience and you just touched on it is you can't save it all <laughs> I mean you save really right. a small percentage of what would otherwise fall to the ground right is that your experience yes it is uh, usually by the end of the rainy season my tanks are overflowing the other thing I think that's important to consider is wherever you've got a house, there are not typically plants or trees growing unless you've got a green roof and then the soil isn't that deep anyway. So my feeling is that that water that you are collecting from your rooftop isn't going into you know, necessarily feeding the plants that are directly there. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the water in any rain shed does make its way into the streams, you know, the streams then making their way into the ocean, and all of those fish, like salmon and steelhead, uh, need that water flow in order to complete their life cycles. Yeah, and that benefits many, many other live beings. The other thing that though to consider is that water that you have caught is then typically l given out to the land. That's true. At a later point in time to help balance that, which then keeps a lot of things growing mm. uh, that wouldn't typically grow and provides all of this food for so many different species. 
where it wouldn't typically be. That's true. So there is a there is a balance there, and I think this is where human beings can play an incredible role in nurturing the environment, and it is through uh, intelligent use of water that we have the ability to do that. Uh, if you think of the state of California and how m- many agricultural products are created from intelligent water use, it, it's really an amazing thing. Speaking of uh, using intelligent design, um, I'm pretty sure that you're using permaculture designs for some of your um, structures of gardens or water features. And I, I, I know that, for example, an, an herbal spiral garden mm-hmm. is uh, much more conservative for water because some plants, as the spiral gets smaller toward the top, it, make, it looks like a little peak, uh, like a little mountain. And so what you water on the top actually also is afforded Watering below. Right. Do you use designs like that? I do. Um, I am growing my garden and orchard on a fairly steep hillside. So my garden beds are at the top. Those are the things that I water daily. So whatever water is seeping into the soil is then making its way downhill. Perhaps uh, that's why my trees down below are doing so well. I I think it may have something to do with it. Yes. Yeah. And how about things like raised beds? Or um, I've seen, I've not tried it, uh, planting horizontal I guess vertically. vertically so like on a wall mm-hmm. um, you can use either pallet designs and make basically troughs that are that look horizontal but they're one on top of the other do you use anything like that I don't use that but I have seen those systems used to uh-huh. great advantage uh-huh. and there is a friend that I have uh, who has a place in town, all of his gray water goes to water a system like that. uh, And the plants are just growing abundantly, you know, as a result. So there is that, I guess you'd call it the trickle-down effect. The trickle-down effect in the garden. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So, Cynthia, can I talk a little bit more about my system? Yes. The the roof to the storage tank. Please. Um, So... Doing rain catch, you can imagine you're catching off your roof. Uh, There is a fair amount of stuff that's going to end up on your roof no matter what. Mm -hmm. And you want to try to get that out in one way or another. Filtering, a filtering system of some type is important. And in my experience, it's best to filter as much of that out before it ever goes into any kind of a storage tank. So... I have screens at the downspouts so that any big leaves or sticks don't go down into the drain pipe and potentially clog it. Uh, Once the water is into the PVC pipe, it's heading for the downhill toward the storage tank, and it then goes up and across before it goes into the storage tank. As it's traveling across into the storage tank, I have a big 
four inch pipe PVC pipe running straight down uh, it's closed off however it creates the possibility for any heavy objects like stones that may have gotten into the system to fall out into that water column uh, at the bottom of that four inch pipe I have an outlet so every year at the end of the rainy season I let that water out and there's an amazing amount of heavy material that's been caught in it then once the water is entering into the tank I have a stainless steel screen uh, filter that the water has to pass through before it goes into the storage tank so any kind of debris that's left in the water is typically filtered out all that we're left with going into the storage tank is dust uh, you know very small particulate dirt that would have gotten onto the roof just mm -hmm. you know and pass through the filters yeah. and that typically will settle out into the bottom of the tank uh, so every so often you need to get into the tank and wash that stuff out mm-hmm and did I hear you earlier correctly that you actually use this water to bathe in? Yes. Is that an like an outsourced shower? No, it goes... Do you goes, put it back in the house? Yeah, just so that beautiful water that we are catching is then pumped up hill to some tanks that are above our house and buildings and gardens so that we can gravity feed that water uh, back. Um, and we use it for washing clothes, doing dishes. Uh, we filter it before we drink it. Um, but bathing, if you've not bathed in rainwater, rain oh, it's heaven. You have no idea what a bath can be like. Yeah, because it it really uh, is so soothing to the skin. So it's it's really alkaline. It's well, I test my water. Yes, um, what you find. It, it's about neutral. It's neutral. It's neutral, typically. And so, um, but it's soft it because would, it doesn't have the minerals in it that uh, you would typically right. find if it was coming from a well or a spring. Uh-huh. And that's the softness that we feel when we rinse our hair in it. It's luxurious. It's luxurious. Know, Even it's just so thinking wonderful. about it, I'm ready to go take a bath. Well, you know, we are... Um, we're in a mild climate here in the Central Coast. I mean, we've had a really hot summer, and there's fire danger. Um, I just came back from two days camping in Big Sur. There are no campfires allowed, no smoking allowed. It's really serious. But some other places that are inland, of course, inland cities use a lot more water than we do. And temperature has a lot to do with water usage. Coastal towns in general use far less water than inland territories. Right. It, it makes sense. You bring up a very important point, uh, fire safety. And when you consider what do you do when you have a fire, you better hope that you've got some water around, which is another plug for having water storage. On site. On site. Mm. And being able to supply water to fire trucks that are pulling up because they typically don't have a lot of water storage in those trucks but also to be able to put your own fire out <laughs> <laughs> that's right without the trucks there you go. 
So you are uh, one of the volunteer firemen. I right? am. You're on a volunteer fire brigade. Mid-coast fire brigade, yes, in Palo Colorado Canyon. And you saw some action last year? At the Fire for Fire, yes. And it was those houses that had the water where the fire trucks posted up and fought the fire because they had they had access they had water to use to put the fire out so it's it's a good thing in many ways that you get some water storage tanks and it's not even storage tanks because you can do cisterns it's something that we haven't talked about at all but underground water storage was very common uh, you know across the country back in the early 1900s almost every home had a cistern um, to very good use so let's I mean we have uh, five more minutes um, three three more minutes so let's talk about that just real quickly since you brought it up it's a great idea cisterns uh, I'm gonna imagine that anyone living in a tract home situation let's say they own their home right um, are going to have limited space space to put one. What, Correct. What's the minimum size? Do you know of a cistern that you can bury? I mean, I'm ima- it's like you get a tank, right? And you dig a hole and you put the tank underground, and then you have an input to that tank. Yes, it's an it's just underground tanks can be. Uh, you have to be careful with underground tanks. Stanford University, they have a facility, um, Jasper Ridge, and they did a whole water catchment uh, system and put in a huge underground water storage tank. When it rained, there was no water in the storage tank. There was, you know, air. Water was beginning to come into the tank. (laughs) (laughs) You know what happened. There's no vent. (laughs) Well, no, the the water in the ground pushed the tank up out of the ground because the tank was filled mostly with air. So you have to be, you have to really know what you're doing to put in a cistern. Yeah. You know, and it and was Stanford. They didn't have anybody who knew. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a little embarrassing. Pretty hilarious. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so you know, lo- most of the cisterns in in the old days, anyway, were built of cement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could custom. You can custom the build. Size. Yes, and I don't know of anybody that's doing it in the area at this point in time, but it is something to look into. They can be built of yeah. block, and there's also ferrous cement that can be used that uses a lot less material. Um, you know, there were ferro and are, there are ferrous cement boats um, that still apply the waters of the world. Um, and there are ferrous cement water tanks. Uh, so it's another material that can be used to great advantage in water storage. Is there an advantage of having something buried like a cistern versus an under roof catchment storage? I think the under roof catchment storage is a little bit simpler simply because you can access it at all times. Um, however, the underground water storage is out of sight. And out then of you mind. get to use the surface of that land. That's correct. Wow. So there's pluses and minuses to both. That is amazing. You know, I wish we had more time to cover 
Water with Theo Mayer, our local uh, off-grid resident in Palo Colorado Canyon near Big Sur. But we are out of time, Theo. So I just, I really want to thank you for taking the time to drive all the way in to the studio here and share some of your tips and information. You're so welcome, Cynthia. It's a great pleasure to be here again. And we'll have you back because there's more to your story. (laughs) I love it.